Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Jake Lefebvre, and I'm here with Brett Landry. We just finished a fantastic conversation with Adam Mabry. Adam is the author of The Art of Rest, Faith to Hit Pause in a World That Never Stops. Yeah, Adam is a pastor of a church near Boston. Uh, He is, as Jake said, an author. He's a coach in a number of different ways to church planters, campus ministers, disciple makers. Uh, He's got a passion for all of those things. In addition to that, we talk uh, about burnout. We talk about uh, learning how to rest, what it means to the the art of rest is this idea that it's like art. Learning how to rest is going to take practice before you're good at it. And so he brings us into that storyline in his own life and then in the ways that he found uh, a healthier balance in his life. We also ended up talking about his article that he wrote on the Gospel Coalition in the United States of America, uh, talking about the relationship between Calvinists and charismatics. And so uh, if you're into that type of thing, we go on in some degree uh, to conversation around that, which uh, we hope you really, really will enjoy. Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Brett Landry, and I'm here with Jake LaFave. And on the line today, we have Adam Mabry, who is the lead pastor of Aletheia Church in Boston, Massachusetts, where he lives with his wife and his four kids. Adam is a church planter, and uh, has a passion for church planting, uh, pastoral ministry, campus ministry, world missions. Uh, he's written some stuff that you can find, and we'll give you the details on where you can find that later on, and, uh, and is a great thinker. Very, very happy. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Yeah, we, um, we, we have some relationships that have overlapped, and so I know that we've, we've known of each other and had, have chatted uh, several times over the years just about what it looks like to be a church planter in, uh, in the North American context. Um, Adam, tell us a little bit of your story. Where are you coming from, and, uh, and what, are you, uh, what are you on about? Yeah, uh, well, I was born and raised in Panama City Beach, Florida, which is a small town on a beautiful beach known mostly for being the spring break capital of the world. So uh, it's, a, it's a weird place to grow up. Um, and so you have a really uh, pretty conservative local crowd uh, and a pretty non-conservative crowd that comes to visit uh, for about a third of the year. Um, uh, but I, I grew up there. I loved it there. I met Jesus there. And, um, and that was really revolutionary. My family weren't followers of Christ. Um, although growing up in the South, uh, if you have a face in the 1980s, and then you're a Christian. Um, and so uh, we were Christians sort of in name only, but um, I had a pretty radical encounter um, actually at a, at a Christian summer camp. Uh, between my uh, sixth and seventh grade year, and um, yeah, it was it was a real game changer for me, a real you know Saul with the scales falling off sort of experience. And um, my family was experienced a pretty hefty degree of brokenness and uh, an addiction and things like that in my family. But over time, God began to heal um, each uh, member of my immediate family, and and they all had their own encounters with with the Lord and experience of a uh, freedom from those uh, besetting addictions. So. Uh, that sort of gave me a taste of what, what God could do. Um, I met my wife in high school. Uh, she was, we shared the same math class at 15. Um, and, uh, she was 16 and got married when uh, I was 20 and she was 21 and got a really radical call in the ministry, um, after that. So we got married really early because, um, I shoved my four year degree into two years. I was very motivated. Uh, as I mentioned in that, in, in the book I wrote, I'm a, I have a, crazy driven achiever. And so I was like, achieve getting married, check, let's go. So I think my final semester, I like 
I think it was taking 23 credit hours working at a restaurant and like moving into the house that would be the home we shared. And, uh, we got married a week later after I graduated. Um, <laughs> the plan was very much to stay in, um, in Tallahassee, Florida, which is where we were at the time, um, being involved in our local church that was also, um, uh, ran the church-based campus ministry that uh, I was really impacted by. Um, and we were living there and I was working as a realtor back in the day when, uh, when, uh, but before the crash, when uh, when that was still a good idea, it's it's a good idea again. But there was a solid minute there where selling houses in Florida wasn't a, wasn't a good idea. I was at least uh, challenged. So yeah, I was. We were happy, um, and uh, but we got invited to go to a campus ministry conference with the same crew uh, that I was a part of in college. And going to that conference, um, a guy got up to give a an announcement really about this church plant that he was going to lead in Edinburgh, Scotland, a place I'd never been, and. Um, I experienced the the nearest thing to the audible voice of God I've I've ever experienced. I heard God say, "Stop what you're doing and go and do that." And, and my immediate response was, uh, "No, uh, no, <laughs> I will not be doing." It. Um, uh, my wife and I uh, had talked about missions forever, and uh, she felt called into missions, and I was like, "Well, good for you," but I feel called uh, to uh, to nope your call, so uh, I don't want to do that. And um, but uh, we got back to the hotel later that night, and. Um, she confessed to me, hey, uh, what did you think of that? And I was like, I don't know, what did you think? And she said, well, it's the weirdest thing. When he was getting up and speaking, you know, I felt like God said to me, stop what you're doing and go and do that. And I was wow. like, oh, no. Um, so we, <laughs> yeah. we, uh, we realized, okay, that's, that's probably the Lord. We should maybe explore this and um, make a long story short. We, uh, a, a year later, we had finished some training. We developed a team of financial partners. We had a baby, and uh, we moved to Scotland. And uh, so we lived there for five years, uh, laboring alongside a, a great team. It was like the first page of A Tale of Two Cities. Man, it was the best of times and worst of times. Um, uh, cutting teeth in ministry, making a ton of mistakes. Um, the, all the challenges of you know living away from home with a, with a new baby when you're just married and all that stuff. Um, but we also got to see some really beautiful fruit born. And um, I, I wasn't the lead pastor on, the, on that stuff. I was a campus minister and it was the worship leader and... I think anybody who's been a part of a church plant knows that like in church planting uh, job titles are really decorative anyway. So I sort of was the staff do boy was my official title to myself. And, uh, but it was great. It was the, the on the job training for church planting that I, uh, that I didn't know I needed. And toward the end of our time there, um, that's when I, I began to feel called like, Oh man, we might be called to do this. So, um, I decided I didn't want to plant a church if I wasn't going to be any good at it. So I, uh, Hope and I went through an assessment process um, that our movement of churches, every nation had developed. And that was uh, really encouraging. We got a two thumbs way up, green light, you know, go for it. So um, we selected Boston in a very, uh, very, by very spiritually going, well, uh, which, which city in America is really old and unbelieving like Edinburgh was. (laughs) Um, And uh, oh, Boston. So we took a trip here, um, prayed and uh, then moved here. So we arrived here in 2010, the summer of 2010, and um, the church opened about nine months later and still growing and going. Well, I think the, the, the training ground that you would have been on in Scotland to prepare you to do what you've been doing now since then, you know, since 2010 and, and you know building things out there, I, it's such a great opportunity. And I wish more people who felt called to plant churches would just submit themselves to a lengthy season like that of cutting their teeth uh, in an environment where it could really build into their future call. And sometimes we don't know these things and we're doing whatever, but 
man, what an opportunity to be able to partner together with people who had also discerned that call and were going to lead the way. And then you can come and join their team. And like you said, be the do boy, but really glean a lot of wisdom over the time that you're there. Yeah. You know, back in the day when every nation was a little younger, uh, one of the axioms that, uh, there were two axioms that got thrown around in a lot of sermons that really stuck with me. One was when you find your people, God will show you your purpose. Um, that in the kingdom of God, relationships matter more than like achievement, like, like things we do. And, uh, man, I just, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I thought, man, I, I think, I think these people might be the people that God's asked me to like labor alongside long-term. And then the other was, if you want God to build a great vision, then go build the great vision of a godly man. Um, and, uh, you know, neither of those things are popular uh, to say, uh, nor easy to do, I guess. But those those two axioms were like, they still ring constantly in my ears um, as just sort of the strange upside down way that the kingdom of God might just work. So, um, yeah, for both Hope and I, we were like, well, but we knew we were called to ministry. And we just kind of were like, well, I guess God will tell us at some point. And uh, then he did in quite a dramatic fashion. And so we were like, well, better go. It wasn't easy. And there were definitely many times where I was like, man, the heck with this. Let's go home. But, you know, we didn't. <laughs> so I think there's there's a I mean, so I've heard those axioms probably from the same person who said them to you. And, you know, <laughs> when Steve Merle talked about this, um, you know, oh man, it was probably 10, 12. Oh no, it would have been probably 12 years ago. I would have heard him say something like that. Mm-hmm. And um you know, being impacted by by the reality that sometimes you need to, you, like, I can't remember where the phrase was, but serve another vision before you try to, to develop yours. And that's such a good thing to put yourself under authority in that way. And it formed me. And, and, and I, I think it's something that has been evident in a lot of people who've, who've gone out to lead or maybe you, you have that visionary type streak in you and you go do something. But those years of submitting to somebody else's and making that thing work for them, uh, you know, alongside the call that God is on your life, obviously, it's so foundational. Adam, if I can just pick up on that real quickly, I you know you talk in your book about being a doer and a high achiever, and and even as you were sort of rattling off your early history, I thought you were like fourteen by the time you got married, and you know had graduated <laughs> with degrees and stuff. Uh, to, to the guy listening right now who feels very driven, feels called by God to do this, you talk about a season of discernment. What are some practical things uh, that that this guy or this gal can kind of give themselves to uh, in this season? as they sort of, you know, have this desire and this longing, uh, but it's not quite the time yet. What are some practical things that they can give themselves to? Well, uh, submit yourself to spiritual authority. Now that can get weird. The big asterisk is, you know, that spiritual authority needs to be like holy spiritual authority, not just, uh, you know, not not just someone who seems spiritual, quote unquote, like right. following, following, the, I mean, discipleship, and John Mark Comer writes about this a ton. It, it, discipleship is not a class. Um, classes are helpful, and I teach a bunch of them, but it's a, it really is apprenticeship to Jesus, right? And it's it's a lot of it is not not pretty stuff. So, man, I wanted to, I just would use any excuse I could to get around people I admired. So I think the first thing it says serve people that you admire just to just to spend time with them. Um, uh, the, the second I would say is I, I kept a journal of. Um, huge ideas that I thought, you know, some of them were very achievable. Some of them were crazy. And I still do. Um, it's not, it's not the journal I use to like, you know, when I'm spending my normal time with the Lord, but it's just like 
a, a safe place to ideate that I don't have to get anyone else's opinions on. And I, some of that stuff may never happen, but it's just, I write it down and I form the thought as strong as I can, as big as I can, as detailed as I can. And then I put it down. And that kind of gives me permission to like have expressed an idea and maybe it's a good one. I don't know. I'll walk away from it. But usually when I get ideas, I get, I feel very strongly about them. <clears throat> um, the third is I, I might, if they're, if they're really strong in their personality and they feel called to achieve and do great things, make sure that you don't try to turn another person's thing into your thing. Um, like don't stand on the platform another person built to try and get your thing done. That's not, um, that's, that's very usurping. And I don't, I think that if God wants to bless the thing that he's put in your heart, he'll, he'll, he'll make the time. Um, the other, you know, the standing on someone's platform and trying to manipulate situations to get your stuff done is very anxiety inducing. Hmm. Um, because I think at bottom, we know because the Holy spirit lives in us that that's wrong. Like at a pretty deep level, but we, you know, have a lot of good Bible language or whatever to kind of suppress that truth. Right. Um, and, uh, and so maybe those are the three things that I would say. And Adam, just if I could go back to the first one, you talk about just taking some time, submitting yourself to spiritual authority. Uh, you, you open your book, and if I can introduce that now, if that's okay with you, Brett. Uh, the Art of Rest, Faith to Hit Pause in a World that Never Stops. Uh, you open your book by, as we've kind of you know danced around so far, ad- admitting to being sort of a doer uh, and to be you know sort of a, a, a real enthusiastic doer. Uh, and then you say in page 14 of your, of your book, like, why would you listen to a book on rest from a doer? You say, because if I can learn to stop, uh, so can you. And, and I just found it really fascinating to see how this is not just something where you're an expert on this topic. And, you know, as you say, also in your book, you know, like this wise man sitting on your porch, you know, winsomely, you know, and casually, you know, like Eugene Peterson-esque type figure. But you're like, you're in the middle of it. You're learning how to do this. You're figuring it out. Uh, can you talk about that journey that God took you on, uh, learning how to rest and sort of maybe some of the low times in that journey and sort of how he brought you out of that? Ooh, yes, I can talk about that a lot. <laughs> um, my hyperachievement is so connected to pretty like deep emotional pain and just how I'm wired by God. So the the devil, man, is just, he can't make anything, right? Augustine makes this point that, that sin is just the privation of good. It's not it's not a thing in and of itself. And, um, so God built me to, to get a lot of things done. Um, I've always been this way. I mean, from the time I have a memory of being like in the third grade and my teacher could, you know, was struggling to draw a cube. And so I got up, I took the chalk from her hand. I drew the cube. Um, then I drew a few more cubes That's just amazing. to be helpful. And, uh, and I got sent to the principal's office. Um, but in my, in my little third grade brain, I was being profoundly helpful. Um, uh, assisting this person. I, I've just always been... Hey, hey, I've identified that you're terrible at your job. Let me help you with that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm also eight yeah. years old, but it's going to be okay yes. for you later. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it just made total sense that I should be in charge and uh, get a lot of things done. And uh, it didn't... That, no, not very few people uh, <laughs> resonated with that deep conviction of mine. Um, but the what I did note is... So, so the one is wiring by God. Like, I'm just wired to do this. The other is... Um, it's just some of the, my family brokenness. I, I learned much later in life through, through sitting with a really gifted Christian therapist and doing a lot of reflecting that, uh, a younger version of me really, really, uh, knew how to uh, obtain affection by applause for doing something great. So, or, or just achieving something that few do. So I would find something that I was good at and then I would do it. And the feedback that I got. Uh, was a was a pretty 
a pretty good substitute for unconditional love for a while <clears throat> until it wasn't. And so that journey of those twin things together, right, uh, kind of marks the whole life. So um, early on, um, got got a ton done, you know, for the church, got married early. Got, like, I'm like a decade ahead of most life stages. Like, I'm 36, but I have two teenage kids. Like, I, that's not normal. And I get that. Um, and I took a lot of pride in that sort of stuff. Um, and up until about five years ago or so, there, there really wasn't a thing I'd experienced in life that I couldn't overcome by working just a bit harder and putting in a few more hours. So mm. the walls came crashing down for me when uh, the church is growing. I'm trying to finish a master's degree. We have a, a new kid that doesn't like to sleep. And I bought a house that required a lot of attention and fixing up because Boston's uh, very, very expensive, much like the place where you guys live. So we kind of got a house by the skin of our teeth and I was putting in overtime, just trying to make it habitable. And, uh, man, it just crushed me. I, I, I met my limit of my ability to achieve. Um, and boy, went through a, like a nine month long, um, depression, not, not a, not a chemical one, but a situational one. Um, and kind of like had a crisis of identity. My gosh, if I can't be the person who gets everything done and, and like, if this doesn't work, who am I? And, uh, ooh, that was, that was tough. One of the things that led me out of that season that God taught me though, was that like resting is a critical part of any, any man's, uh, life with Jesus. And the refusal to do so is just a very unsubtle idolatry, um, and disobedience that will like all idolatry and disobedience lead you to pain and eventual failure. So I'd experienced that and, uh, and still fight it. I mean, I'm no, I'm not, a perfect Sabbatarian by any means, but, uh, um, but work harder and better at, better at the art than when yeah. I started. Yeah. If I can pick up on that last word you just said, you talk about rest as art in the book. And so, uh, I I'm used to thinking of Sabbath as, you know, like you don't do this and you don't do this and you don't do this. And here are the boundaries. It's like the bowling uh, lane bumpers, you know, to keep you in the Sabbath lane here. Uh, but you talk about, uh, rest as art. Can you elaborate a bit on, uh, why Sabbath rest is, is artful? Yeah. Um, because art is something good at it takes practice. Yes, who are um, just really good at a particular, you know, artistic expression. But um, for most of us, uh, it takes practice. Like the metaphor I think I use in the book is when my kids were learning to play the violin. Um, I don't know if you ever heard anyone learn to play the violin, but it yeah. is. Yes, horrible. I have. It's the worst I mean, it sounds like the murder of woodland creatures. Like it is worst, worst. Um, and uh, and yet over time, like now, my kids, the ones that play the violin, like they play very well and it's very lovely. Um, well, when you try to, to rest for the first few times, you might be really bad at it and not know what to do and feel really anxious and all this didn't feel very restful. Um, yeah, that's because you're working a muscle that's very weak or you're picking up an art form that you're, you know, it's like drawing with your left hand if you're right-handed, like it's going to take some practice, but it's worth practicing because like you really, really need it. I think the, so, I mean, a lot of what you've just outlined is, is very parallel to my experience. Um, I'm not as smart as you, so I didn't do an undergrad in two years like you did. But you know, we we got well, we, we my got, grades weren't great; they were just <laughs> achieved. <laughs> they were achieved. No, but you you have these things that um, that people who are driven and ambitious and who are doers. Um, you know, when I went through a massive crisis of faith and identity, really not faith in God, but just like who am I and who am I as it relates to my job as a pastor, church planter. 
I started to have this overwhelming fear that if it all fell apart, if I screwed everything up, that no one would love me. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden you realize that's not normal. Like I could pastor somebody through that. I know what to say, but I'm having a hard time connecting what I understand to be true to my own heart. And one of the things I think that your book highlights is in terms of uh, rest as art, which will take time to get good at, is those of us who are a little bit too driven or a little bit too much on the task oriented, I'm going to accomplish things, I can solve this if I just work a little harder. Those of us who are on that spectrum uh, and on the heavy end of it, I think have a harder time doing it because you start something that you're not good at and you go, I'm not good at this. I won't do it. And, and right. That, right. Like if I'm not good at something, like, let me tell you why I don't play a lot of golf because I was not bad at golf as a teenager. And now when I play golf, I'm terrible because I never play. And so, yes, so that, I can, that t- is so parallel to my whole childhood. If yeah. that's why I don't play basketball. Like <laughs> I tried it a few times, was like, nope. And I will never, and, and I don't <laughs> for that yeah. reason. Yeah. And so if you, if you're used to accomplishing things and being very successful at whatever you do and you're, you're, that's normal for you. And then you have an experience of now I believe there's something called Sabbath that I need to give myself to. I need to be a person whose identity is not just wrapped up in achievement and what I can do for other people and for God. And you, you lean into it in that way. I, and then you suck at it. If you're used to being successful at everything you do, but you all of a sudden find something that's supposed to be core to your faith, where you're abiding in Christ and trusting in him and living out of the fullness of your union with him, and it's supposed to be this beautiful, peaceful thing where you, like Jake said earlier, you take Eugene Peterson-type hikes, and you notice mm-hmm. the the color of the feathers on the bird, and it brings you know glory because you're resting in God's creation, and you have all of these things, and then you go and do it, and you're like, I'm not good at this. Yes. Like, like I solved every problem in that season of my life, very similar to what you just said. I would say I'm stressed. So, that, so I would say, here's how I feel. I am stressed. And then I would say, why am I stressed? Well, I'm stressed because A, B, and C remain undone. Therefore, mm-hmm. if I accomplish A, B, and C, I will no longer feel stressed, which will be a good place to, to, to live. And mm-hmm. what I would do is just work harder. And I would work more. Yes. And I would grind myself. And I became a terrible husband uh to mm-hmm. just difficult there was about a, a probably a one-year period where i was i think just difficult to live with yes and my kids noticed it my wife noticed it most more than anyone and the problem was is on the surface if you work harder you will do well if you're if you have a baseline competency at whatever it is you do and then you just apply yourself with a real diligent work ethic you will succeed and other people will pat you on the back and so i would have meetings with you know outside partners who were helping us to start the church and they would go man things are going great and i go yep and they go how are you doing personally and i go great <laughs> and they go great. yeah great everything's going so great and and it, i glossed over it too easily and and yeah so reading your book i just there's a lot of moments of laughter for me because you talk about the art of rest. I mean, it was something that took a lot of practice for me. And by God's grace, I feel so good and healthy and 95% of the time now. Yeah, I I was all those things. And uh, unfortunately, I think I was a, a, a subpar pastor, father, and dad for longer than one year. And uh yeah, just walking around um, angry and frustrated at things unfulfilled that no one assigned to me but me. Right. Uh, right. And, yeah. You set yeah. you set the expectations, and then you had to meet them, right? Yep. 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 Yeah. 
So Adam, if I can ask, you know, we have lots of church members who are listening to this, people who belong to churches here or in elsewhere. Uh, how can church members uh, care for their pastors who are prone to things like this? Uh, are oh, there any sort of warning signs, uh, anything they can notice, anything they can be attentive to uh, that would help them? Oh, what a, what a good question. I've, I've actually not, not been asked this one um, before. The... I would ask if your pastor rests. I mean, because Sunday is not a day of rest. One of the reasons I'm not a Sabbatarian is, frankly, just not theological. If if Sunday is the day of rest, well, then crud. Yeah, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're hoops. It's like, it's like an 18-hour day, at least for me, it seems like. like no way. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe uh, someone will say, well, that's because you're not doing it right. Uh, that would be discouraging. But I, <laughs> I, I, I just think, no, I, I, this isn't my rest day. Um, and so I, I think just to, if you have a relationship with your pastor, I'd say, well, you know, just ask, like, do, do, does he, do you have that? And then maybe the follow-up question to the elders or whatever board of, you know, whomever helps run the church with or above or beside or below your pastor is like, do we give him the room to rest or are we expecting him to be at our beck and call every single day? Now, pastors have to practice. I mean, like parents do, um, uh, we we have to we have to put up the boundaries, and so if pastors don't ever put up the boundaries, then you know we shouldn't be too shocked when uh, when uh, the the sheep come running into the house uh, where we're, uh, because uh, we didn't we didn't shut the door as it were. Yeah. So um, Andy Stanley has this thing where he says, if I'm going to cheat my family or the church, I should always cheat the church, and I, I think that that's mostly true. Um, so I would ask that. I, I might also look at the pastor's wife and and just ask myself, does this look like a person who's rested and, and is pleased with the man she's married to and do these children seem that way too not in a judgmental way but in like a gosh uh, i don't don't just assume that pastor's great and his house is great and his kids are great nor nor judge him for them not being great just assume he's a human uh who's a christian trying to follow jesus uh, uh, just slightly up the, up the road from you um and i would also pray for him, man um the devil is real and he's um really unfair and really, really, really good at his job and the discouragement and just frankly, the demonic, um, that comes against me and my family and my kids is, uh, is, is real. Yeah. It's, and it's horrible. And so prayer is a, is a needed commodity. If you're a prayer warrior in your church and your pastor doesn't have like a team of intercessors built or people just praying for, for him and the staff, um, maybe, maybe volunteer to, to do that because that's a, that's a needed, that's a needed thing. Yeah, those are the favorite people, mm-hmm. the, the people who just just say we're praying, and here's how we're praying, and here's what we're praying. It's a, such a gift, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Adam, if I can ask as well, too, and so that question was sort of self-serving. You know, how can you care for your pastor a little bit more? Uh, to one that's not quite as self-serving, um, there'll be stay-at-home parents listening to this podcast mm-hmm. uh, whose life uh, is just... Uh, unavoidably crazy, you know, like, the, you know, it's not that they've added too much or made poor decisions just by, you know, on the basis of where they're at and not just stay at home parents, but, but a bunch of people uh, who will be mm-hmm. like, you know, this is just where I'm at. And this is just a hand I've been dealt right now. Um, is there a word of hope that you would speak uh, to, to these people who are just sort of in these crazy unavoidable uh, seasons where it just seems like everything's just spiraling out of control and it's too much? Like, like, what is the word of hope that you would speak to them? Hmm. Seasons change. That's why we call them seasons. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think the lie of the enemy in any season is it's always going to be this way. That's like in any moment where I've 
like the moment just before I go into a depressive mode is the moment I believe the lie that it's always going to be this way. And uh, it's not always going to be this way. That's right. it, it, it's not always going to be, um, the kids aren't always going to be little or they're not always going to be needing to run a soccer practice. They're not always going to be teenagers. And like things change. Um, and this is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Like it, it's, it's, it's brief and it's, it's vaporous. Um, and therefore breathe it in and enjoy it. Um, and dare in those moments, to, uh, especially to parents, I feel, uh, I don't know if you have the, um, the crazy achiever soccer mom syndrome up where you guys are, but, um, holy cow, the pressure, even, I mean, the pressure, even I feel, you know, raising kids next to all these Ivy league schools of, yeah. Well, they got to get into college. They got to pad their resume. They got to, you know what they really need? They, what they really need is not to go to Harvard. I mean, if they go, great. What they need is to have been raised by parents who love Jesus more than the sense of achievement that they got from their kids' achievements. Yeah. Um, and when little Johnny blows out his ACL at 23 because he was on a soccer scholarship and now his whole world is coming crashing down because this is America and we don't have soccer stars. Um, what he right. will really have needed in that moment is not parents that drew, drove him to do more things. He'll have needed parents who had a Sabbath, who had a great marriage, who knew how to like breathe in. So I guess the, the word of hope is it's okay to say no. It's not always going to be this way. Um, and you can even find pockets of rest in the busiest time. Um, you, you, you truly, truly can. Um, it just takes some practice. <laughs> so... Uh, Adam, as a as a soccer coach uh, slash dad myself, I feel like that was a particularly word for me. And it's and it's well. Sorry, go ahead. Sometimes I prophesy. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and you know, it, it's just, it's funny how we can slip into this. You know, while I, I get up every Sunday and t- talk talk about the gospel and the goodness uh, found in Jesus, and then I can go and be like, but ultimately, you know, I hope my son gets in a good school, and if you know somebody else is paying for that, that that's really nice, and you know, we should probably give at least you know three or four more hours a week to this, and if there's a trainer involved, then he's five years old, uh, and so I, I really do appreciate that. I think that's a good word for us as a people as well too. Well, I think we are mm-hmm. we're, we're in some senses. Yeah, I think in every city in North America, you're going to find that um, because the yeah. people who are who are inhabiting the cities in North America, especially. You know the the downtown centers of certain places, um, like where you are, like where we are. There are people who've done well, and so their their expectation is that their kids will do better. They want the best future for them, and I think a lot of times is we're we're shifting the end goal with people. Always, we're always shifting the end goal to say actually the end goal is not that your kid is the best track star on uh, on their team. The, the The end goal is not my my girls all play basketball. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not that tall. Uh, I'm 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 tall-ish, but also not, living in Canada. Yeah, I'm I'm not basketball tall, and and mm-hmm. it, but I think what you have to be able to do, whether it be rest or or the driven toward achievement, is to zoom out back to that thirty-five thousand foot view of what life looks like. And and I think Adam, you're you're taking those two things and really weaving them together nicely by saying, you know, there is something that we need to pay attention to about the moments of time that are seasons of time. That that our our worth as individuals is not founded upon our success on that particular quarter, and I know that a lot of people who work in the corporate world, you know, they are measured, uh, hired, fired, or promoted or demoted based upon their achievement in a particular quarter, and so for them, they may hear this and say, 
you know, I'm not, I'm not just a soccer mom. I'm not just a, a pastor. I'm not whatever. I'm, I'm giving my whole life to this and I'm judged by the metrics of what I produce. And it's even in the midst of that, helping them to find some place of pushing pause. You know, your, the subtitle of your book in terms of faith to hit pause in a world that never stops. Um, and on that note, Adam, can you speak to the way that you would encourage people with their digital connectivity uh, with regard to their rest? Because I think, I mean, I, I was meeting with someone this morning who was saying their boss is all over them because they called them four times before 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And he's like, yeah, uh, my kids had swimming lessons. Sorry. Like, I'm not, wor- you know, number one, I'm not working today. Number two, it's it's before nine in the morning. And yes, I know you called me four times, but I was busy. And so... You know, yes. but that but that employee now takes heat because of their lack of connectivity on the weekend. Um, maybe just speak to some of those things in the current you know climate that we live in. I think it's so so important to be to have uh, moments where you put your phone down. Um, I will say I, I I'm not good at this. I try really. I actually just uh, about a month ago I took off my Apple Watch and forgot to put it back on for a couple of days, and I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, I love this. <laughs> I love not having my Apple Watch on, so I haven't worn it for about a month. And and I have the I had I was given the first Apple Watch as like a gift, and now I'm thinking I don't think I'm gonna replace this. I think I'm just gonna go no watch. Um, if you need for someone to take an Apple Watch from you, Adam, I know of a few people who might accept that. Well, gift. well great, yeah, yeah. they uh, they'll have to get behind the, my daughters. Um, but as I am a technological <laughs> uh, puritan in our home, um, uh, I, I would say as well, hey, moms and dads, don't don't buy your kids smartphones. They don't need them. They don't need them. Um, and, and I do get a little dogmatic about this because I know, at, uh, I mean, I, I saw my first porn when I was five and it was a part of my life until like three months before I got married. And I know what I would have done with a smartphone. And I love Jesus at that time. Um, if I had a supercomputer in my pocket and, and just yeah. now you get to take your bully home with you I, because I'm a big nerd and I'm in all these um, programs, I have access to all these uh, Kind of online databases for various academic journals. So one day I decided to let me go mine some psychological databases for like studies on the the actual science, not the Time Magazine version of the science, but the actual science on what, what these devices do to like teen brains. And yeah. it's nothing but bad. There's literally <laughs> zero good things that, that they do. None, not one. Um, there's, but like the negative potential is huge. So um, we actually, uh, I'm going to do a, a, a plug for a company called Gab Wireless that has created a smartphone that's a dumb phone. So your kid gets to have a smartphone and be socially accepted, but the phone doesn't do anything smart. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I bought these for my kids uh, because that was the that was the rub. And uh, and we say put your phone down, you know, at, da- at dinner, uh, and, you know, take your phone out of your room at night. Like Hope and I, we put our phones down and stuff like that. And so. Um, yeah, you just have to be able to say no. I, I actually, there's a, mm, I just saw this author who is uh, advocating as a, as a piece of social policy, not a Christian guy, that we need, we need to like, inst, like institutionalize in our culture, uh, like phone free times and moments uh, for this, for this very reason. So yeah, because it's just, I mean, it's like, you know, I said for teens, you get to take your bully home with you, but for, it's true for adults too. Yeah. Um, and if my bully's in my pocket and Facebook is just, man, fueling the FOMO and my boss can, you know, tap my wrist anytime he dang well pleases, like I'm enslaved. That is slavery. Um, I am, I am now the wholly owned subsidiary of some other thing. And, uh, that's not restful. That's horrible. Well, I think the, what you've just said would put you in the top 2% in terms of people who've thought about this. 
Uh, we don't have phones. <laughs> just just to say, we don't have phones at the dinner table. In the evening, we put them down. I've chosen to take my Apple Watch off because I realized I was becoming a slave to it. Um, those are things that, 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 that that's a baseline entry point, we would maybe think. And let me tell you something, man. I went, I, I've, every year now, I've done, a di- I call it a digital detox, where I go off my social media, which I care about, you know, you know, in different windows of time more than I should, just because it's like, I think it's fun, but it's so addictive. And the problem is, is those are alg- algorithmically designed to keep my attention and they're very yes, and good it's at it. neuropsychologically addictive. Like, yes. like it is, it is actually addictive. <laughs> so, so what I'll do is I, I've done this every year now for, I don't know, Jake, what, three years, three or four years. It's, it's, it's the staff of our church do not like this. And I'm, I'm going to say a caveat on this. I understand that not everyone can just make this decision. Okay. What I'm about to say. But I have, I have a flip phone, and I have like a SIM card adjustment size thing, and I, I take the SIM card out of my iPhone, and I plug it into my flip phone, and this year I did it for three months. Whoa. And, and oh, man, I love it. Because it, it is I can't respond to wow. texts. It's for, aggravating. For staff, very annoying. For Brett Soul very good yeah and because they love ah. me, they go, hey, you got to do your thing. But, but I'm, I'm like, if you want to phone me, I can talk. If you want a yes or no answer to something, you can text me. If not, email me. And and my discipline is that, that I just do my email when I'm at work. Yeah. Which is, but then, you know, and then you say, well, how do the other nine months of the year go, Brett? Oh, very good question. I'm, I'm hooked on this thing, man. Uh, because mm-hmm. I have all of those same cravings that you have to be uh, efficient and effective and successful. And I want to serve people well. And there's a genuine desire to serve people well. So that means if I can say a quick response to an email you know, at 1130 at, in the evening and I'm setting the alarm on my phone or something and I look at it and go, oh, I can respond to that really quick. That'll help them in the morning. You know, I, I just, I, for me, I'm an on or off person. I don't have like a dial down. Like I don't have like, let's right. turn, turn it up to 10. I'm either on or off, which is good in lots of ways, but is also terrible. There's a, there's a dark side to it. Mm-hmm. And that means I have a difficult time unplugging. And so, you know, my wife, if she listens to this, she can just laugh and go, yeah, here's here's Brett and Adam. I'm sure your wife would say the same thing, Adam. Here's Brett and Adam talking about their their smartphone usage um, in a way where, hey, do what I've done, and my wife will go, yeah, maybe do what you've done three months a year. Yeah, right. Totally, totally. Yeah, that's that. You're you're inspiring me to like a whole new level of goals here. Uh, I, I, it, it's, I mean, I heard a guy use this phrase, and um, it was actually Mark Sayers who told me this, that, that he was talking to another pastor. I think the guy was based out of New York, but he's calling it, he's calling it moving into the digital Babylon, or living in the digital mm-hmm. Babylon was this part of the book. Right. He's talking about living yeah. in the digital desert, and so like the desert fathers back in the early centuries of the church would just hmm. like literally move out of society into like you know, huts in the desert and just live there in a, in a small community, but totally separated from the rest of the world. He's talking about like, you know, generation Z or Z cause you're American. That is. The, you mean it, correct, but go ahead. Yes. It, um. Yes. Yes. yes you're, <laughs> that was yeah. very American of me to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Just like American cheese. No one's ever thought of this before. Everyone else calls it cheddar, but Americans call it American. I was just down in New York last week. And so I, I'm, I'm full of stuff. I have, I have all kinds of fodder for this conversation. As a, but, as a guy who lives in Boston, I have nothing good to say about New York. We have all the culture and, and cool stuff of New York with zero of the urine smell. So if you like <laughs> New York, just come to Boston. Oh, man. Better. Shout out to our New York friends. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but he's talking about going into the digital desert and, and what that looks like as a follower of Jesus to remove yourself from some of the culturally 
uh, not only acceptable, but but the assumption is you're going to be engaged in all these different platforms. And he's talking about a young pastor who's saying, no, I'm actually pulling out of these things that I might abide in Christ in a deeper way, that I might commune mm-hmm. with God in a deeper way, and that I might not be distracted by these other platforms, which 20 years ago were non-existent and everyone was doing just fine, but all of a sudden it's yes. 2019 and you have to be engaged in these things. Um, right. So I don't know. There's there's lots of people who who I think are going to speak into this in the years to come, but it's part of a countercultural move that really shows our faithfulness in the gospel. Yeah, I mean, if you think it's probably about as countercultural as the Puritans were, you know, when they were doing things like, look, we're not gonna we're, we're not gonna dress like everyone else and and do what everyone else is doing. Not in like an, in a kind of minnow Simon's let me, let me come ye out from among them sort of thing, but just healthy differentiation. Uh, uh, to quote uh, Friedman, is is kind of necessary for gospel witness um, because anxiety is not a very attractive sell for hey come follow Jesus. It's uh it's more stuff to do. Like that's not right. that's not. <laughs> are you already busy? Cool. I have church things for you. Like that's a that's a terrible sell. But when you're around people who are like you know restful and know how to know how to not be owned by their stuff, it's it's beautifully attractive. I, it's most of like. Why, when someone thinks of restfulness, they think of someone like you know, um, like uh, like like Peterson, because it's he just exudes this restfulness with Jesus. He also lives in like or lived in Montana and stuff, but um, <clears throat> which is a uh, you know beautiful and slow moving and all that. Right. But you, he, that was his soul though, and and he, he lived in Vancouver for a long time as a professor at Regent right. College, and so I mean he he, right. he lived where we live and. If he could live that kind of life here, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that it's possible. Mm. If I can make a, a bit of a turn in our conversation now, again, Adam's book is uh, "The Art of Rest: Faith to Hit Pause in a World That Never Stops." Adam, you also wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition United States website called "Why Charismatics and Calvinists Need Each Other." Now, charismatics, yes. Calvinists, not two uh, people I typically associate with each other. And in the article, uh, you self-identify, if I can say it like that, as a reformed charismatic. What is Correct. a reformed charismatic? Um, yeah, well, it's a, a poor use of words, but it's the words that we've got, unfortunately. Um, reformed meaning my theological feet are firmly found in the wonderful rediscoveries of the Reformation, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, uh, which is a message found in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone, um, that that's everything that the Reformers uncovered, not divorced from the Christian history that came before it, but in uh, in correction to the uh, abuses of the previous few centuries that led up to it. Um, I, I, my feet are there. Um, charismatic in that I, I am also deeply connected to the wind-like, uh, unpredictable, but beautiful way God's moving in, in the world, um, in, in other countries, in the forward advance of the, of the mission. And, and I in no way share the conviction that the scriptures somehow clearly teach that there's a demarcation between supernatural or natural gifts or revelatory and non-revelatory gifts. I think that's profoundly bad and, and, uh, and, uh, eisegesis. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I think that everything the reformers taught us to take the Bible really seriously uh, leads me to the conviction that theologically that God's still uh, doing able and willing to do the kinds of things today that he did to <clears throat> kick off the party in, uh, in Acts and, uh, and the party's still going on. He still likes to do those things, uh, even though we, we you know, um, some, some pastors who are uh, uh, 
uh, grumpy uh, sometimes <laughs> on social media and in all other forms of media. I uh, like to say that that's not the case. Um, but I just, you know, I lovingly say, no, I, I, I think that that's, I think that's wrong. I also experience it. And so I have to rec- reckon with my experience and the experience of some 800 million followers of Jesus that have suddenly popped up um, in the last hundred years, making like the modern global Pentecostal, you know, modern Pentecostal charismatic movement. Uh, it's the fastest growing religious movement in the history of the world. Right. Um, so I have to reckon with that. And my Bible tells me that love hopes all things and believes all things. I, I feel like I have to take them very seriously and lovingly. So I, uh, I believe that God loves to do everything he always loved to do um, all within the bounds of the, the book that the spirit wrote. So, so, so to be clear, you're talking about the continuation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church uh, in 2019 in Cambridge and Boston and everywhere else that you're doing church. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. So you're talking about First Corinthians chapter 12, uh, gifts of the Spirit. We've got you know gifts of miracles, gifts of faith. Uh, mm-hmm. gift of knowledge, you, you know, you, you're talking about wisdom, you're talking about tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing, prophecy. I'm, I'm, I'm just looking at these, you're talking about discernment and the the gifts of the Spirit that are listed there in 1 Corinthians 12 and also in Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 and I think is it is in 1 Peter chapter 4, you've got a few. Uh, you're talking about the, the belief that these are continuing on in the life of the church, that there is no point in the history of Jesus' church where these stopped working, that these miraculous and sign gifts are still in function today. Correct. Okay. Um, I, I think I can, I think I've got a pretty solid case biblically, theologically, and I've, I've actually done some of the heavy lifting, uh, studying the first five centuries of church history, and it was just a it was so regular that the Didache had to directly address like how to do it. Um, it was yes. so regular that that uh, early apolo- I mean, Justin Martyr is famous for being the first Christian apologist to use Greek thought. But what no one continues to read is that he used that Greek thought right alongside in his Apologia, um, or I'm sorry, in his uh, dialogue with Trifo, uh, saying like, "And by the way, <laughs> the blind see and the dead yeah. are raised in our meetings. What goes on in your church services?" Right. <laughs> and those were just he just kind of said all that in the same paragraph uh, and he did things like that and it's just went on over and over and over again. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I totally, totally think that that's the case. I yeah. think that we, uh, N.T. Wright points this out a lot. We live in this kind of neo Epicureanism as if we're the first people to think like, uh, ah, yes, there's a divide between, you know, the spiritual and the, and the bodily and the bodily is better or the spiritual is better. Um, uh, we're not, it's a very old ancient form of pagan thought and, uh, I reject it wholeheartedly. Well, that's good. We're we're in full agreement on that, which I, I mean, I knew before I'm asking you the questions, but I, I wanted good thing. to be, I was stalking very strongly there. Right, no, <laughs> made the rest I, I wanted to be on. very, no, yeah, no, no. I wanted us to be very clear with what we mean when we're talking about this, because there are pictures of the charismatic church. And, you know, we've had um, Kosti Hinn on the podcast, who is the nephew uh-huh. of Benny Hinn, who has rejected the prosperity gospel and all the nonsense that went on in that ministry. And uh, and is now seeking to see some of his family, you know, come to a place of uh, of of reconciliation, but also just maybe even awareness of what they've done. Mm. And and so you have this this you say the word charismatic. Some people think Benny Hinn in a white suit hitting somebody over the head with his suit jacket, and they're falling mm-hmm. down and barking like a dog. Or you, you know you hear that and you go, okay, that's charismatic. So I don't want that. Therefore, I will reject wholesale 
all of the gifts of the Spirit as revealed in Scripture, because I don't want that abuse of the charismatic tradition or the charismatic ministry of the Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, you're talking about the doctrines of grace, of of how we are saved at the initiation of God, and we are saved, as you said, revealed in Scripture by grace through faith in Christ to the glory of God alone, and you're talking about these five solos of the Reformation and the beauty that is there. And, and it's odd how these two worlds that I've just described, that you've just described, don't often talk to each other, mm-hmm. and you don't often find people who are building into the context of their local church the uh, both the doctrines of grace and the continuation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit under mm-hmm. the authority of Scripture. And so it's—let me say it like this. What's been the response you've had? Because I know that this post has gone far and wide. Well, in my— Local church, the response that I have is wonderful. Um, you know, and uh, I, it's funny. I went to Reform Theological Seminary. I was taught to read the Bible like in a PCA church. And for the longest time, people would kind of bring up the boogeyman of the angry Calvinist. And I was like, I don't know who these people are. Like all of the people that I ever interacted with were just lovely, profoundly godly people. And uh, and then I wrote that article and I was like, ah, there they are. Because uh, now they email me. <laughs> I was going to say, man, you don't have to look that far to find the angry Calvinist. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I can send I you some maybe, names maybe, if you maybe want. Maybe I was just, uh, I was in the wrong classes or something, but yeah. I just found everyone to be great yeah. um and filled with love and and uh, i mean heck i my my master's thesis at rts was on asking the question is the is the or the administration of the gifts that we've seen in church history in the last hundred years at any in any way analogous to the way they seem to be in the first say 400 years of the church and i was my hypothesis was no they, they're not going to be and my the, what i found was yep yep they had weird pentecostal meetings back then too we have one recorded in the book of first corinthians yeah um and uh and, and what's interesting to me is uh you know when did when did we become so safe my gosh i mean we're quite happy to give platform and sell and book deals and uh, and hits and followership to people who can turn a phrase very well and have lots of academic credentials as if that will never go wrong on us. But then someone who says that they can, you know, uh, that, that God speaks to them and they like to encourage people uh, under the authority of scripture. Well, you know, that's that's certainly something not to be touched. I mean, my goodness, like it, it's it's just profound foolishness when you think about it slowly. And I mean, safety, my, my, my gosh, like I'd, I would rather my heart posture toward the Lord be. Um, if God wants to heal, let the healing not, I'm sorry, if someone is sick and I'm praying for them, let their healing, even if it doesn't come, let it not be because I didn't ask in faith. That's right. Let it be because it was God's sovereign will to take this person down a different journey. Um, but let me never be found lacking the, the faith that God can open blind eyes, that God can speak to dead hearts. And uh, I mean, theologically, it, it also makes no sense to me to believe that God can, you know, call a uh, fiat lux into the dead heart of a sinner, and that somehow is fine for us to believe, uh, antecedent to their own cognizance of repentance and faith. But He can't reveal a an encouragement prophetically. I, I don't know. This seems if if God is sovereign, God is sovereign, and He can sovereignly help me say what I'm supposed to say, and or or, or not, but. Um, I, I, I have much, much, much trouble with the in, internal logic of the attempt to uh, circle certain things that God is no longer um, doing. Adam, in uh, Andrew Wilson's book, Spirit and Sacrament, uh, Wilson, of course, a pastor teacher out of the UK, mm-hmm. uh, he describes yeah. sort of these, these two camps like this. He says, most often I felt like the child of divorced parents who would badmouth each other as I deeply loved uh, each one of them. 
Uh, and I just thought that was a, just a great uh, sort of um, explanation of someone caught in the middle, wanting to see uh, these gifts uh, today, wanting to see powerful moves of the Spirit today, but also deeply committed uh, to the Word of God and the doctrines of grace, as you outline uh, in your article. You also say in your article, um, charismatics love the fire of God, but sometimes we burn things down with it. And then you say, and this is great, Calvinists make a beautiful fireplace, but sometimes we struggle to get the fire started. And I just thought that was a beautiful picture of, of sort of the, you know, the, the safety and the safeguards of, of Calvinist doctrine and the, the joy therein, but also, too, of how, you know, if there's no fire, uh, then, then what is that fireplace for? And so I found that to be really helpful. Uh, if, if there's someone listening right now who is a Calvinist and who would be, you know, staunchly in that camp and a bit weary uh, of these uh, of these gifts today. Yes. Let's be honest. Everybody who's not a Calvinist, quit listening as soon as we use the word Calvinist. Right. So everyone listening yes. right now is Calvinist still. Perhaps you could just name this episode "Triggering Words" by Pastor Adam. That's that right. That's Got nice. it. Got it. What would be the first steps uh, for those Calvinists who are apparently all listening right now? Like in terms of getting them to think beyond uh, their own camp and their own tribe. Uh, in, in these respects? like, What are like the baby steps uh, uh, towards uh, maybe a more charismatic uh, theology? Mm. Well, I think the first step might be to, if, to a little reflection. Like if you find yourself really disliking, liking and perhaps hating someone who is charismatic or Pentecostal or, or, or even a particular Bible teacher, on TV, you should repent. And the reason you should repent is because Paul didn't feel that way about people who were prospering unduly from the preaching of the gospel, right? Mm. Um, Paul said, look, I rejoice, (laughs) whether for gain or whatever. They're talking about Jesus. So, I mean, we're swimming in roughly the same direction. You know, we'll figure it out in the end. And and Paul, Paul was smarter than you and me. Like he's, he's, he wrote the Bible. So I feel like he gets, if he get, is going to have that attitude then we should, I should constantly search my heart. I have to do it in reverse. I, I have to, I have to, I, I can get really animated about a different set of theological difficulties and um, really, really just struggle to love uh, my, my brothers and sisters who disagree with certain convictions I have. We probably all do this, but I must still love them. Um, and love is an action and a posture um, and a decision before it is a feeling often. And, so I might ask, like, do you need to repent of lovelessness? Um, I might also just really, really, really encourage them to slowly read First Corinthians, and without the aid of of a of a too many um, commentaries initially, and just ask yourself, like, what what seems more likely from this text? Um, what is this text saying? And why is Paul writing this? You know, uh, sit down and read the whole book. It might take you like an hour and a half or two. Um, and just like, what's the big idea that Paul seems to be communicating? And what seems to have been on his heart? And his heart doesn't seem to have been to stop them from doing cr- I mean, they were Pentecostal weirdos. I mean, weirdos uh, <laughs> right there. And and he never corrects them for that. He corrects them for lovelessness. Yeah. He corrects them for not clearly thinking um, but he never turns off their. He never says don't don't practice these gifts. In fact, he says um, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. That 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 Greek phrase that or word that we get as in English as earnestly desire is like it is real strong. <laughs> it it is it is in some extent literature connected to sexual desire. It, it's it's the kid before Christmas morning. I mean, it is earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Mm. And I just might ask the listener to reflect again. 
do you think you are obeying that text? Um, when the Bible commands me in my posture to earnestly desire these things, not just the, the weird ones, but just any of them in first Corinthians 12 or 14 or Romans 12, like, is that your attitude toward them? And if not, why? And what would it take? What would, what would, what would repentance and trust in that particular part of the Bible look like? Um, it, the nice thing about being in the internet age um, is that we've never been closer to our brothers and sisters. Like, yeah, the internet is can be a terrible place where we all fight and hate each other, but it can also be this, like, I can just go watch some sermons if I want to and really reflect and maybe even email the pastor who preached it. And, and uh, I mean, they might get back to you. Um, there are some really great books uh, as well mm-hmm. uh, that, that one can, one can engage in. And, and of course, pray and ask, like, God, I want whatever you want to give me. Um, I think a gap I hope to fill in future writing uh, when I'm done with all this study is is um, how to do this. Like, how do you go from, okay, I'm a Christian, to actually seeking an experience of the filling of the Spirit um, in such a way that some of those gifts start to manifest and make their way into your life as a, as a disciple? Um, these are practices that we've kind of built into our discipleship process here at Alathia. In fact, this weekend we are, (laughs) we're going to be doing, um, one of, one of those experiences. Um, because I, I think that's probably the big gap is like, how do, how do we start? And I'm actually trying to do a lot of thinking about that, but it it would start with reflection and looking at my Bible and going, Hmm, am I, am I, uh, am I obedient to these texts and what would it look like for me to become more obedient to them? I think, Adam, one of the other things that I've often tried to encourage people, because, you know, I I do agree with what you've said in terms of the fireplace and the fire, and I also, I came at it from the other angle, so when I first came to Christ, ended up in a very charismatic church that really rejected the doctrines of grace, and Mm. and so I came to that later on, so the charismatic element of things was very real and alive in my life, and uh, I found it all very supported uh, very clearly in Scripture, but then I was taught something else. I was actually taught that Calvinism was a doctrine of demons, that demons, oh, that, de- yeah, that demons inspired uh, John Calvin to write about predestination so that people wouldn't evangelize anymore, which is hilarious mm-hmm. when you look at the, the, the actual life of whether it be Augustine through you know, Calvin, Luther, and then all the way yes. through, you know, the Spurgeons. And I mean, you just, you start to look yes. at, you know, Whitfield and you start to look at the, the, yeah, all, I mean, just, it's hilarious that that was actually a thought, but I came <clears> to that a little bit later on. <clears throat> Here's what I try to encourage people with is to not buy into the caricatures that are out there. The, yeah. the, the caricature of the angry Calvinist or the caricature of the just totally unhinged charismatic. Um, you know, you, you may find uh, two out of t- two, you know, two out of a hundred are are going to be unhinged or angry, but you're also going to find ninety eight percent of them are so wonderful and loving and mm-hmm. love Jesus, and it's so clear that they have a deep relationship with Him and that they've been transformed mm-hmm. by the work of Christ, and that they love the Word and that they love. You know, you're just you're if you can sort of minimize the caricatured picture that grows up in the polarizing age that we live. And you can yes. actually look eyeball to eyeball with somebody who you disagree with on this and go, genuinely, can you explain to me how you got there? I, mm-hmm. I, I will guarantee if that conversation is the or the point of origin in, in your questions, and then you sit down and open the word together, you're going to find, whether you agree with each other at the end of it, you're going to find a brother or sister in Christ in that journey. 
And yes. you will recognize yes. that you don't have to be just isolated in your camps. And so, man, it's, it's, it's a desire for us. And, you know, the context that we live is different. You know, when I'm in Asia or I've been in Africa, you know, it's different than it is here. I, I think, you know, you talk about the, the way that we got to the place where we're so safely guarded in all of our ideas. And you talk about the rationalism and, and empiricism that have come to us and that we've inherited as our way of thinking and how you can make a lot more sense out of the Bible with that than you can with the miraculous. And, you know, you can go through all the different schools of thought. But basically, I think it comes down to, do you have a desire to actually understand the person who disagrees with you or who you think disagrees with you? And do you have the patience to sit down with them and engage in it? Yeah, I, I think that's such a, yeah, amen. I'm into all of that. Absolutely. Adam, you, you have been really blessed in my own city by developing just honestly, really deep friendships with guys from other pastors from totally different tribes. Um, uh, that I never thought when I moved here would be the thing that, uh, that, that I experienced. Um, but it, uh, it's so blessed me and surprised me and rebuked me. Um, you know, from like, oh, I thought this about your movement or your people or your tribe, and uh, oh boy, I was wrong. Uh, you're mm. you're lovely um, as a as a brother in the Lord, and yeah, um, it just seems like that's the way we answer Jesus' prayer in John 17. Yeah, um, like we don't all have to do things the same way, but man, um, I like to say it like this: like, yeah, I've got substantive disagreements with uh, other brothers, but I, I look forward to that being my big problem. Right now, I have a I have 150 other big problems, namely uh, the advance of the gospel in, yeah, in my city. Yeah. So uh, my finer point of you know how exactly the order of salvation comes about, uh, yeah, that'll be great. I, I look forward to that being my biggest issue to solve with others, yeah. correcting other pastors. But right now, yeah. <laughs> right now the the world is on fire and they have a bucket, so we're we're good. <laughs> we're well, good. I, Adam, I really appreciate uh, your thinking and to bring it full circle. I love how you ended there. Just this thought, you know, like where we started with church planting and going out and making disciples, and how this conversation between you know at times warring groups uh, is so needed if we're going to make disciples of people who are all very different, just like we are very different. Uh, mm-hmm. And so um, I really appreciate that, uh, Adam. Thanks for making time to to just speak with us and to uh, talk to us about your book, The Art of Rest. Again, faith to hit pause in a world that never stops. Uh, Adam, uh, thanks so much. We really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Yeah, thank you, guys. I really enjoy the conversation. Okay, well, we'll uh, maybe we can do it again sometime and have you back on to, uh, we can you know split some of those hairs again. Yes, well, I only have a very few hairs to split, so that'll <laughs> okay. be Thanks, man. Take care. Thanks, Adam. All right, cheers. Bye-bye. Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragon Podcast.